Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Twimmel's AI Rewind 2020, where we explore trends in computer vision. And to help us with that, I am pleased to welcome Pavan Taraga, who is an associate professor in the Department of Arts, Media, and Engineering and Electrical Engineering, as well as interim director in the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering at Arizona State University. Back to the show. Pavan, welcome back. Thank you so much, Sam. This is an honor to be back. And thank you so much for the timing. This is the 24th and very festive. Thank you so much and uh, looking forward to it. Yep. I'm really looking forward to diving into this. Pavan and I had a great discussion on his research on invariant geometry and deep neural networks back in June. And we had such a great conversation. We invited him back to, again, walk us through the trends in computer vision from his perspective. And let's just jump right in. Maybe, Pavan, tell us a little bit about kind of broad brushstrokes. What are you seeing as the major developments in computer vision in 2020? I mean, a lot of things have happened. Computer vision has never been, uh, you know, uh, more active than, than what's happened in 2020. And so much, so much variety of work has come. Lots of things have matured. Lots of old ideas are being revisited and lots of transitions to industry are occurring. When it comes to things like methodologies, we are seeing a resurgence of interest in certain old ways of thinking about scenes, shapes, light fields, and how do you fuse those ideas with contemporary neural nets. That's a big emerging trend. There are other established trends which are being you know, further you know, grounded in applications. Things like self-supervised learning is becoming more and more understood, and it's becoming more and more interesting as an application area. There are many other things in reinforcement learning, adversarial attacks and defenses, and how those things affect computer vision pipelines. A lot of stuff has happened. But if I had to identify one unusual trend, it would be this idea of revisiting physics-based ways of thinking about scenes and rendering and how that interfaces with neural nets for a variety of applications. That's just beginning to take off in 2020. Interesting, interesting. For a while, the dominant trend in vision was just making the networks wider and deeper. Are, are we still seeing a lot of that or have we moved past that to some of the ideas that you mentioned and that we'll be discussing in the, the papers you've selected for us? I mean, the idea of being wide and deep still is a workhorse. It's not done yet. And there are many, many issues to be resolved and how do you optimize things? How do you get those things to converge? That is certainly an active area of research. Uh, but what we're finding is uh, maybe going that deep and that wide is not necessary if you just redo some basic architectures and some basic input mapping functions or activation layers or loss functions. We are finding that you don't need to go that deep. So that is certainly somewhat surprising. These things have been said before that if you infuse neural nets with knowledge of the world, they should do better. It's always been uh, stated as a statement in principle. What we're seeing now is more and more specific examples where these things are succeeding in remarkable ways. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, going wide and deep is certainly the default approach, but we're seeing a counterpoint emerge uh, in very specific ways and in very remarkable ways. Mm -hmm. 
Are the the benchmarks that folks are comparing their work against, are they remaining pretty stable or are we seeing new benchmark tasks emerge in vision? I mean, the benchmarks, the big ones, the object recognition, scene recognition have largely remained stable. But there is also a realization that we may have to go beyond this database-driven work. You know, how much more do you want to look at rock curves and numbers when the real big deal is in transitioning those to applications? But the post-data set world could emerge in 2021. We are not seeing that much interest in beating numbers anymore, even though you have to do that a little bit to publish. But that's not where the interest in the field is at this time. Uh, revisiting theory, revisiting basic understanding of phenomena is where we are headed. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about the papers that jumped out to you as some of the key computer vision uh, papers this year? Sure. So I chose a selection of papers which are roughly in the area of differentiable rendering, if you will, and uh, how people are rethinking uh, a very classic problem, which is given a picture from a scene, given or a few pictures from a scene, learning something about the 3D structure, the light direction, the reflectance, the geometry of the object, which is the classic imaging problem. Given a few pictures from a scene, can you reconstruct enough about the scene that you can resynthesize different views of the scene? That's the age-old problem of vision. Over the years, people have made progress in specific narrow versions of this, which is given a single picture, can I estimate a depth map? That's one version of it. Given a single picture, can I estimate lighting direction? Given one picture, can I estimate reflectance properties of the object? So there are all these little packaged modules that people have looked at. I think this year, uh, something remarkable has happened. Uh, When you think about things like understanding the 3D geometry of a scene, there is a way to think about geometry which falls in two major categories. One is 3D geometry specified very explicitly in terms of a point cloud, in terms of XYZ locations of points in the scene or a full representation that allows you to explicitly know where is the object. Then that category of representation suffers in a few ways. One is it's very hard to be super explicit. The only way you can be super explicit is... On the sensing side, if you have an actual full-on depth sensor, a LiDAR, what have you, that fully senses the object in its entirety. And even if it did that, you are still limited in resolution to the underlying resolution of that sensing hardware. So if it senses at whatever, you know, if one centimeter squared is the least it can sense, that's the resolution you have. And you have to store the whole point cloud, if you will. So it doesn't quite lend itself to efficient ways of storing and processing. But that's the way it has been for a number of years. So the Kinect sensor, motion capture devices, other kinds of databases that deal with shapes always represented shapes explicitly as a graph or as a as a no as as a you know as a mesh or as a point cloud. So these are classic explicit representations of shapes. Way back in the 80s and 90s, uh, there was a whole different way of thinking about representing shapes using implicit methods, where you don't represent shapes explicitly with X Y Z locations of points but you represent it either as a distance function. How far am I? Given a random XYZ location, your implicit function would say, how far am I from the nearest point in the shape? So I think of it like, uh, it's like navigating a scene in a blindfolded way where the only information you have is how far am I from the nearest wall? So that's an implicit representation of shape. There are other ways in which people have represented shapes, including things like level sets of functions or or as a classifier decision boundary, that's another remarkable way people have represented shapes. So if you have a bunch of points in 3D space, 
people say, think of the points on the shape as a class with plus and everything not on the shape as minus and fit an SVM, of course, a nonlinear SVM because shapes are not, you know, simple. So fit a nonlinear SVM that separates points on the shape versus points that are off the shape. Mm -hmm. And then that SVM becomes your implicit representation of the shape. The benefit of that is uh, in comes an XYZ coordinate to that SVM and out comes a number, a zero or a one, or you can make it fuzzy. You can spit out probabilities. But the thing is, this function now becomes very compact and you can evaluate the function at whatever resolution you want. I mean, if your original pixels were discrete from whatever, one to a million or one to 1,000, one to 1,000, but I want sub-pixel precision, I can evaluate the SVM by just sending fractional inputs in. I can evaluate the SVM for bigger resolutions. So it suddenly changes the way you think about shapes. Resolution is no longer a problem. Storing the shape is no longer a problem. Now I just store the parameters of the SVM. So that is the implicit way of thinking about shapes, which ruled the roost and shape representations prior to the deep learning revolution, even until the 2010s. And then all of those ideas went away. But then this year, I'm seeing people revisiting those ideas again and asking an interesting question, which is if you think of this implicit way of thinking of shapes, which is it's a function which takes as input an XYZ location in space and spits out, let's say, you know, let's say we're thinking in terms of these SVNs or distance functions. The output of this function should be a number between 0 and 1, which tells me how close I am to the object, or it tells me whether I am outside the object or on the object or inside the object. So some simple numbers like that. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that function. In in the old days, if you had to f- estimate that function, you had to have the ground truth 3D shape uh, on which you would run this SVM procedure or other implicit function procedures. So you had to have measured the full 3D shape. The neural nets revolution has given us some sense that you do not need ground truth 3D shape to estimate implicit functions. And that is something that has you know, the first crack uh, happened last year, not 2020, actually. In 2019, there were a few papers which showed that you could estimate these implicit functions without knowing the ground truth 3D shape. The idea was this, which is, if I only have pictures of objects like cars or maybe CAD models, which have been rendered in certain ways, then let me assume the neural net figures out, given enough training data, what that structure is, what that input-output mapping is, but the way I would evaluate whether the neural net learned it is to re-render the scene with this implicit 3D representation you have and then compare it with the grounded pictures I have. So at no point in the pipeline, you would assume access to the full 3D structure of the scene. The first ideas were around uh, how do you re-render a scene if the scene is represented as an SVM decision boundary? So those yeah. were some of the early papers that came out in 2019. And they were able to create a differentiable approach to create that rendering process. That was the key contribution. If the function is an SVM, how do you render a scene in a way that is actually differentiable? And that cracked open uh, the whole field. And this year, we had a few other papers in that realm, which went beyond the idea of SVMs and to full light field representations, which is a whole different layer of complexity. Yeah, so we can go into those details as well, but I wanted to see if you had any reaction to that. Yeah, well, I'm curious, can you summarize the foundational contribution of the 2019 papers in terms of how they went about the rendering process? 
Yeah, I mean, for every representation, there is a special way in which you would render a scene based off of that implicit representation. In the case of this SVM way of thinking about it, if you had this implicit function learned somehow, which takes an input and mm-hmm. XYZ location and spits out a probability or a distance function from the decision boundary, what they did was revisit some old graphics techniques called marching cubes. And uh, you would take... Uh, you marching would sound, cubes? Yeah. Yeah, it's a graphics technique, which okay. even I'm not an expert on. But uh, I, the idea is this. You would take a point in space and maybe a direction, and you would shoot a ray from this camera viewing choice that you have made and evaluate the function at multiple places on that ray, mm-hmm. for example. And you would choose a threshold at which, I mean, if you're getting closer and closer to the shape, you would see that in the values. And maybe you'll choose a threshold at which point you'd say, I've intersected that shape. And you would take that point of intersection and XYZ location and store it in, in a data structure which says, okay, this is the point from this camera view that should appear. And uh, you would go back and read off. Uh, I mean, you, from that, you would sort of create this uh, 2D projection of a 3D shape and you would read off the color from hoping that it aligns with a picture in your database. So, mm-hmm. and then you would just copy paste the pixel values onto those locations and then just compare the error and representation. So this idea of creating these rays and sampling it and evaluating the function over multiple places and choosing a threshold was considered, you know, was converted into this differentiable way of thinking. And that's the where, that's where the big contribution is. So okay. taking these old rendering techniques and creating differentiable pathways. And the details are very complicated, of course. I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's not obvious at all, but those were the big contributions. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I was envisioning something along the lines of trying to recreate the 3D point cloud in kind of regular intervals and passing it through your SVM and seeing what came back and Very similar. getting yeah. more granular. Yeah. But the ray and coming from different angles sounds like a... a, a th- I'm guessing what they're going for is the ability to kind of treat it like a photo or a camera scene and, and render from different perspectives. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, rendering has never been thought of as a differentiable operation because it was never considered required. I mean, you just, if you have 3D, just render it. And, um, you know, there's many ways to do it. But if you have to use neural nets to learn that implicit representation, you need the renderer to be differentiable. And that's where a lot of energy is going. And every rendering technique is probably not differentiable at this time, but that's where much of the energy is going. Take a few rendering ideas and create differentiable ways uh, to, yeah, redo those. And just to close the loop on that last part of the conversation, is the differentiability a product only of the SVM or does the ray technique oh. and the re-rendering contribute to the differentiability? It's the, yeah, it's the ray tracing and yeah, that's the part which needs to be yeah. Uh, redone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So let's jump into the the first paper that builds on this idea. Yeah. So the first paper I had was, it's called NERF, which is making a lot of news across the, you know, the Twitter boards and uh, all over the place. It stands for, you know, neural radiance fields. That's what it's a short form for. This idea of neural radiance fields is rooted in a different representation of scenes. This idea of representing objects as decision boundaries of SVMs is a very special case. You know, as you can imagine, it would work for certain kinds of objects, which are nice, closed compact so that there is a very clean inside and an outside and the decision boundary should be simple enough that an SVM can actually fit it. So you can imagine that it would not work very well if objects had holes or if it were lots and lots of donut shapes. 
And if there were self-intersections or, you know, convexities or concavities, it's not a good idea to use an SVM Mm -hmm. to model that kind of a geometry. So what is the most general way in which you can model the whole thing without being super specific to shapes and then light separately and color separately? The idea for this is rooted in a different category of representations of scenes called light fields and uh, planoptic functions. The most general way in which this is done is uh, you are essentially representing scenes as light rays. You know, the old representation of light fields was think of the image formation process as a two-plane representation. You have a camera plane and then you have a scene plane. And every light ray that hits the camera ever can be seen as a line that connects random points on this plane. So the whole black box camera obscura is basically two planes, you know, one with a pinhole and the other with a screen. But if you try to open up things with lenses, you can replace that pinhole also with a plane. And you're talking of how light travels or connects from one plane to the other. In an explicit way, what it's saying is you can technically record how a light ray or how a point in space, if I pick a point in space, how that point looks from multiple angles, if I encode that, and if I encode that information for every point on my scene, what you essentially have is a light field. The reason why you want to think of it in terms of light fields is because the same point in space can actually look very different from different angles, depending Mm -hmm. upon what its reflectance properties are. Most commonly, we think of objects as painted by, you know, matte colors, right? You know, Lambertian reflectance. But most real objects are shiny, glossy. They reflect light in preferential ways. So if you pick a point in space, it would look very different from different angles. If you were able to store the whole thing, that is a light field. And in the 2000s, there was a lot of attention devoted to creating hardware that would actually get you to explicitly measure the light field. So that's the analog of the explicit ways of measuring shapes through LIDAR. The analog of that in the light field world was what, you know, were considered light field cameras, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a, you know, one of the authors of the paper, Renning, he created a, he spun off a company, Lightro, right? Lightro. I mean, the famous, yeah. right? That's a light field acquisition device, which... And it's pretty amazing. You see the demos and like you take yeah. this picture, but it's not like any picture you've ever seen before. You're able to change the focus after right. the fact to different focal distances. And I think maybe even some degree of rotation or something like that. Yeah, some few changes. Absolutely. Yeah. So it didn't take off as much in the computational or the consumer world, I imagine, but it's a fundamentally interesting way to think about the world as, as you know, measured by any measure. So that's, yeah, the explicit way of representing a light field. If you had it, sure, you can refocus and, you know, choose a depth of field and choose a view. They were trying to revisit those ideas without necessarily explicitly measuring it. So let's assume that a neural net would learn it somehow, given a lot of training data. The ideas they had were similar to this SVM idea, which is let's assume a neural net somehow magically learns the light field Mm -hmm. uh, through feeding in just pictures, not assuming any 3D ground truth of any kind. And the way you would know that it learned it is if you were able to re-render that light field in these ways, that in these controllable ways that I can choose an angle, I can choose a depth of field. If I'm able to re-render it with differentiable ways, then mm-hmm. I can tune the whole neural net end to end. And uh, the neural net would, given enough data, learn the light field with, with no 3D ground truth error or you know, any standard ways of thinking about light fields. Once again, the core contribution was if you had learned that light field, there are many ways to render a scene from a light field. 
but can you do that in a differentiable way? So once again, their core contribution was to redo that whole pipeline of rendering through differentiable techniques and then learn a neural net end-to-end that would just learn the light field on its own. And the assumption is that there's no light field ground truth anywhere at all in the, the process? No, yeah. So the magic is all in the rendering process and how you would uh, work with the light field if you had it. <laughs> and, and how and, you, yeah. And so, so if you had it, do they, I guess I'm, I'm struggling to understand how they, is that an assumption that they start from and the entire work is built on if you had it or did they also show how to get it? Do you... So there's two pieces to it. One is, you know, think of it in uh, two blocks. One is the learning the light field piece of it, mm-hmm. which is blindly a neural net with no special anything. And then the second piece is if the neural net learned it well. And that's where the assumptions begin. If the neural net learned this representation yeah. well. And, and I guess my question you know, is, could the neural net learn it well without access to the a light truth. field representation as ground truth? Uh, That's what they're showing. Yeah. The only way it would actually work is if your rendering technique is faithful to how you would work with light fields. So it's this implicit way of assuming a neural net would learn to do the right thing if you are using its outputs in these well-understood ways. So if you treat the output of this neural net as a light field, um, Mm -hmm. then the assumption is it will learn to fit a light field. (laughs) Got it. Got it. So in... I'm thinking of a autoencoder type of picture. Like you've got, you know, some not 3D ground truth here. You've got some not 3D ground truth on the other side. And you have built your neural net in such a way that the thing in the middle should be a light field-like representation. And you just kind of have to trust that because you're not validating that against actual light fields. Right. But if you're getting the thing you want on the end and your constraints in the neural net are such that the thing in the middle should be the light field, that's kind of... But yeah, yeah. But the supervision part of it comes from if it's learning a light field, the way you force it to learn a light field is to treat it like a light field and then render mm-hmm. it like a light mm-hmm. field. Right. And check against the ground truth. So that's the magic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So the, so in this case, the ground truth, the supervision is you know purely 2D scenes on, on either side? Yeah, I mean, this one would require you to measure a scene. Yes, it's all 2D, but you would need sufficient number of viewing directions for this thing to actually converge well. But it's all 2D mm-hmm. still. It's not assuming 3D supervision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the point you made about treating it like a light field is that all based on kind of a, a analytics, physics-based understanding of the way light fields kind of right. close form stuff or uh, is it also, learned? So they also treat it implicitly. So one of the ways in which they force it to become a light field-like representation is if the classic light field representation is given a point in space and a viewing direction to know what the color of that point in space looks like to a viewer. Mm-hmm. So that is what they force the neural net to spit out. So the input to the neural net is forced to be an XYZ location and a viewing direction, a theta and a phi. And the readout is a color value. And they also go a little bit beyond color, also including things like opacity. So they're okay. sort of expecting it to take inputs like a light field and spit out outputs like a light field. And then they treat the outputs as color and opacity. And that goes into the renderer. So if you have this magic black box, which takes... XYZ phi theta and spits out two numbers. And yeah. if you are going to treat those two numbers as color and opacity and use that to render a scene, 
and cross-check with the picture you had okay. to begin with and then do a backdrop. So for that to succeed, your renderer needs to be differentiable. And if that's differentiable, the neural network will eventually learn to spit out light field-like data. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier the increased interest in self self supervision in computer vision. If you kind of squint and look at it sideways, this is kind of a little like self supervision in the sense that your supervision is not the actual thing that you're training your network on. Is that yeah? That's a bit yeah. of a stretch, I know, but is yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think in the self supervision world, they use it in a very special way. Actually, maybe you're right. There are more similarities here than meet the eye. In the self supervision world, yes, you're using one signal, one picture, or one whatever time series or yeah. video to and typically blocking parts out or something like that. Right. And what you're learning is an autoencoder-ish architecture in the end, which is very genetic. However, here in the NERF kind of ways of thinking about it, what I call that self-supervision, again, the definitions here are not super clear, right? I mean, self-supervision, it's also learning an autoencoder-ish architecture. If you see closely into what the neural net is actually structured as, it's a plain old MLP, could have been structured like an autoencoder. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the difference here is you are actually using the output of the neural network and interpreting it in a very physical way, like color and opacity. In the self-supervision ways of doing things, you could argue that there is a physical thing. I mean, if you try to predict a picture or you take a picture and it's rotated version and try to predict a rotation, you're interpreting the output of the neural net in a physical way also. Mm -hmm. In a way, maybe you're right. I mean, there are certainly some overlaps here in methodologies. Yeah, you're trying to interpret the outputs in some physical way. Yeah. And and maybe, you know, I'm not trying to necessarily be very precise here. I'm trying to maybe get at, is there a term like Like self-supervision that refers to training a network on some higher level thing based on simpler things and having the network figure it out. out. Yeah. And maybe that's just, Hey, deep learning. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a good question. I think I don't have an answer, but uh, people are beginning to ask clearer definitions for these concepts Mm -hmm. and uh, try to create theories around what the words mean and see if there are boundaries that we understand well. It's not yet clear, but it's mm-hmm. certainly, um, there is a task agnosticity here. I mean, we are not using the neural net for an end task. I mean, the only thing we're saying is my rendered picture should look like the picture you gave me. So it's very much like an autoencoder. And mm-hmm. that is the default architecture anyway in most self-supervised learning tasks. Yeah, it's like self-supervision. There is no real end goal we are going after except interpreting the outputs of neural nets in some constrained way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't quite see a solid term that would come to mind yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. What was the next paper that uh, came to mind for you? So the next paper builds on this paper, the NERF paper, and it's by the same authors. One of the things, the NERF paper, actually, if you read it carefully, there is a line somewhere when they describe their model. They say this magic neural net that we're building, which takes an input as an XYZ location and a theta phi as input and spits out a color and opacity. They say, I'm going to model this magic neural net as an MLP, a multi-layer perceptron, which is not super deep, not super wide, very basic. Mm-hmm. And then they make a note saying, FYI, in an upcoming paper, we are talking about how we actually made this work. So this is a follow-up, a secret sauce. Okay. Uh, you know, the thing is, if they hadn't said that statement and you were to evaluate the likelihood of an MLP trying to model a light field, really, which is, you know, how do you judge this? How do I qualitatively judge the success of these mapping functions? 
a light field in its most general case is highly sensitive to small changes in viewing directions given a sufficiently complicated scene if i'm looking at a scene with lots of objects and concavities convexities shiny stuff this and that even a small change in my viewing direction in principle can change the appearance of a single pixel quite dramatically uh, especially if the right. the key thing that you're representing is the color because exactly. as right. the yeah. angle changes that's going to change right so that is a quick assessment of the underlying non linearity involved in fitting this function and they say they do it with the mlp so if i were to review this paper i would have said eh it's sounding too good to be true <laughs> but then they said i have this follow on paper so the follow on paper became a neurips paper and uh, when i read that they say yeah let's look at this implicit mapping strategy and then they sort of abstract out this problem now it's no longer about light fields uh this paper is now about implicit functions in general and they do a bunch of things with it for you know shapes and rendering and other things but then the core idea they talk about is how do you do implicit functions which take in location like data xy location or xyz location and spit out a value which i'm trying to interpret physically like a distance to the nearest point or the distance to a boundary that's the base architecture they're going with mm-hmm. and they say that if you want to treat xy coordinates as input you know uh if you you know when i was back in grad school take a detour there is this very famous old paper called the eight point algorithm for estimating what is called the fundamental matrix given two camera views you know the fundamental matrix tells us how points in one camera relate to points in another camera it's a transformation mm-hmm. when i read this paper i thought of that other paper a very famous paper by richard hartley who said the eight point algorithm says this given two camera views if the cameras are calibrated and if i know the calibration between them which is i know how this camera is shifted and rotated with respect to this one if the whole thing is calibrated the rig is calibrated then i need eight corresponding points on the two cameras to fit what is called the fundamental matrix that would then let me link any given point on this camera to that other camera that eight point algorithm was not even hartley's it was an even older algorithm by two other people called longevet higgins and there is a iccv paper award that carries their name the longevet higgins paper prize in iccv so they wrote a paper back in the i don't even remember 80s or 90s proposing the algorithm but that algorithm never succeeded ever in any practical condition until hartley wrote his paper in the late 90s or early 2000s on revisiting the fundamental matrix estimation technique mm-hmm. and his point was very simple look to estimate the fundamental matrix the inputs to the algorithm are xy coordinates of points in one camera and another camera when you work with xy coordinates you run into dynamic range problems i mean xy coordinates are indexed in integers right typically mm-hmm. they go from 1 to whatever your resolution is or zero to whatever your resolution is so the range is ginormous and any matrix operations that you do with these numbers which are integers which go from really low values to really large values any matrix operation like you know matrix inversion or svd or anything like that suddenly becomes poorly conditioned you have to sort of normalize the coordinates and the very simple normalization he comes up with is okay take everything and convert it to a range of 0 to 1 you know mm-hmm. take the mean value subtracted divide by the size you get a number between 0 1 if you just do that much then suddenly your linear algebra becomes super well conditioned as long as you remember later down that these are normalized coordinates and if you want to reconvert them to real coordinates you have to invert that you know normalization mm-hmm. and that was like a magic paper which which <laughs> re- yeah <laughs> which really made fundamental matrix estimation practical 
And that created this whole revolution in stereo systems, finally being able to estimate, you know, depth maps robustly. When I read this other paper that these people wrote that the input is an XY coordinate or XYZ coordinate, I immediately thought you're going to have dynamic range issues because once again, XYs go from zero to big numbers Mm -hmm. and trying to do anything serious with it calls for some rethinking. It needs some normalization somehow. Mm -hmm. So this NeurIPS paper did just that. And their trick was to take the XYZ values and put it into a sinusoidal function or you know, uh, sinusoidal type functions of different kinds, which by definition bring down everything to a nice range, negative one-to-one. And if you, I mean, there is a loss of uniqueness. I mean, you know, there are many values which would map to the same sinusoidal value. Mm -hmm. So they try to sort of do it in a way that looks like a feature embedding. So take an XY and then hit it with several sinusoid functions with different underlying frequencies, and then you get a big vector. So then you Mm -hmm. try to retain some semblance of uniqueness. If you pass that on to an MLP, they find that the MLP does a great job of fitting these implicit functions. I'm wondering, do you think they tried just normalization? They must have. And do you think that the, I don't know if this even makes sense in context, but some variation of the sinusoidal approach would apply to the eight point problem? Possibly. <laughs> I mean, I mean I maybe maybe I'm asking if the the normalization and the sinusoidal thing are like somehow kind of invertible or transformable to one another related, you know, operations in some way. I mean, I'll have to withhold an answer uh, right away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> asking too specific a question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, about someone mind. else's work. <laughs> I mean, top of the mind, sinusoidal stuff is not directly invertible, right? I mean, you know, yeah. sine is not a one-one mapping, especially on a big range. So you lose invertibility right off the bat. But it's a good question. Did they try just basic normalization or not? I mean, that's something worth looking into. However, uh, I feel there is something intrinsically interesting about sinusoidal embeddings, which is not well understood. If you did basic normalization, I mean, it's understood that you're bringing down the range of your values to a bounded domain and optimization techniques have a nicer time working with that. But sinusoidal stuff add a layer of additional interestingness to it. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a nonlinear mapping to begin with. So you're sort of, in a way, wrapping flat spaces to spheres in a way. In addition to just normalization, it actually helps the neural net learn nonlinearities a little easier because you're already a little nonlinear in the inputs. Mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of the two. I'm sure the MLP works because it's both now nicely bounded in some domains and also that you're encoding some nonlinearities right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And spherical nonlinearities have been shown to work well in a variety of neural net applications. We don't fully know why, and it's 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 so it's its own little investigation. And it's something I'm seeing pop up in many contexts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even we've tried normalizing feature maps in autoencoder-like architectures, take the latent space and force it to be a spherical, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. manifold by just normalizing the norms. And we suddenly find that a lot of things magically improve for neural nets, for object recognition. We find that the class activation maps become compact and they become robust to lots of input perturbations. We are finding interesting ideas like that. And this fits in the mold of what I'm seeing, that if you constrain inputs or latent spaces to some non-Euclidean manifold, you're helping the neural net along because you're sort of encoding nonlinearities already. And these are interesting nonlinearities beyond what people talk about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. 
You mentioned that the first paper was the Nerf paper. I'm not sure if you mentioned the full name, but that one is Nerf representing scenes as neural radiance fields for view synthesis. Mm -hmm. And the second paper is Fourier features let networks learn high frequency functions Mm -hmm. in low dimensional domains. Yeah. I mean, there's been an explosion. I mean, there was recently a survey medium article written by Frank Delart, who used to be at Georgia Tech, and he went through a ton of these papers and their spinoffs. And I highly encourage uh, viewers to check out that survey article. It's on medium somewhere. If you just look at Frank Delart medium article, uh, it just came out a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And yeah, there's folks who are doing super interesting work applying these ideas to video completion. I mean, if you have a neural radiance field for video, you can now start removing objects and filling in background and stuff like that. Jiabin Wong at Virginia Tech is doing that. Lots of people now are latching on to these ideas and mm-hmm. redoing some classic graphic C problems with this. Yeah. And are the ideas that are latching on the specifically the neural radiance fields are also the this Fourier feature mapping as well? I, I, I guess I'm yeah. yeah okay. I mean the neural radiance field is a way to think about uh, light and you know shape, and then uh, the Fourier features is just a simple encoding that helps these networks learn stuff nicely. So it's mm-hmm. it's like a it's like a drop-in module. Both could have existed independently, but uh, the Fourier encoding helps these neural radiance fields to be learned implicitly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. What's the next paper on your list? I mean, uh, a related paper is, you know, now this idea of implicit representations is taken off on its own. You know, it's becoming its own little theoretical problem. One other paper came out and I think it's called, it's, it's got a nice name. It's called Siren. <laughs> and it builds on this idea that if you have a problem where, again, it's the input is an XY like inf- information and the output is a number that you want to interpret in some physical way, they take this idea of sinusoidal embeddings a little further and they start putting these sinusoidal layers all through the network, not just at the front end. And this, this, they say that it just works even better. And they're able to find even more nonlinear functions to be described in this way. When I read this, it feels like, once again, a confirmation of this hypothesis I have, that the more interesting nonlinearities you throw in to latent spaces and at multiple layers of the network, you're just helping the network get past uh, a few of these steps explicitly. So that's interesting to see. Mm -hmm. And that paper is called what? It's called Implicit Neural Representations with Periodic Activation Functions. Mm Mm-hmm. And and so going back to these Fourier features uh, or sinusoidal features, you know, to what degree is their effectiveness specific to the kind of polar spherical nature of 3D representations versus, like, do you see that becoming a standard tool in the toolbox, like you one-shot encode categorical features, you know, we're just going to throw... Fourier features and everything and just see if it helps the network converge? I mean, we could certainly see that happening. I mean, when some of these ideas come out, the initial ideas are somewhat explainable, but then very soon the spin-offs become, yeah, let's just apply it as a feature encoding into anything. And they they become less explainable. But I could certainly see that happening. But I feel there is an explainable version of this. And you know, some of my students are also working on these ideas for other networks, not for just implicit functions. Again, I don't want to talk about my stuff, but there is a growing body of work. You know, we have this workshop, DIFF-CVML, Differential Geometry in Computer Vision and Machine Learning. Lots of mathematicians, applied mathematicians, statisticians come to that. And a big 
chunk of the ideas there is that feature spaces somehow need to be constrained through understanding of basic phenomena in some way. And every time I go to this event, I see spheres and sphere-like representations pop up again and again and again, always in explainable ways. I mean, spheres come out because of, yeah, things like what you're saying. Yeah, there are certain natural explanations for why spheres make sense in 3D vision, the pose sphere, right? The SO3, the rotation matrix has a very Mm -hmm. nice way to think of as a sphere. But there are other things which are not that intuitive, but also become spheres. Things like when people talk of contours, you can think of a contour if it's closed. And if it's a simple contour, people say a contour is topologically the same as a circle. It's just a warped circle. And uh, people start (laughs) thinking about, yeah, people start thinking about circular ways of encoding contours. So the idea of circles is just a warped square. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Except, you know, the thing is circles have closed form and then you can differentiate it. So, yeah, I mean, there are explainable ways. why buff out those edges a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, I mean, mean, there are some explainable ways why spheres are interesting and important, but Mm -hmm. that's just the surface. And then there are the non-explainable ways and suddenly things just work because we don't know why. And yeah, we'll see. We'll see. There there could be that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So the next paper you have is in a little bit of a different direction? Sure. So this is a slightly different paper. This is called Computing the Testing Error Without a Testing Set. And this became a Best Paper nominee at CVPR. And Elish Martinez from Ohio State is the faculty director and their student. I really like this paper because it tackles a very intuitive problem, which should be of interest to practitioners or companies. In the past, I've called this the test driving problem. You know, if you want to test drive a car, you walk into a dealership, you take it for a drive for a few minutes, and then you get a sense of how it will do when you take it to work, for example. So you have a way of predicting performance of whatever that product is in some deployed conditions by test driving stuff. In computer vision, it's, you know, models are growing, but what does it mean to test drive a model? If I were to invest money in buying a model from a developer, how do I know? How do I trust that this will get the job done? So that's the whole thing. There's two answers. One is the, one is the theoretical answer, which is, oh, there are uh, theoretical results from learning theory, which will tell you what that test error sh- could be. And some of that work is uh, very old. You know, Vapnik, uh, who wrote a very famous book on learning theory, and the VC dimension, which gets quoted quite often, is a measure of the complexity of a model. And very loosely speaking, it says the more free parameters you have, the larger the VC dimension is, and the larger the VC dimension is, the more sensitive it will be to deployment changes. So the bounds tell us that if the bounds are literally interpreted, they would say neural nets should perform quite poorly in principle on deployed conditions because they have so many free parameters. But the result they have is interesting. It's somewhat misunderstood. What they provide is a bound saying the test error could be in this huge range of values, which is seen as, you know, people interpret that as saying, oh my God, it's going to be completely unpredictable. That's not what they say. They, they, they just have a loose bound. And it's very hard to get tight bounds on performance. Mm-hmm. So the theoretical answer is practically not useful then. It just says the performance could be pretty bizarre <laughs> <laughs> or it could work. You know, they, they don't quite say. Mm-hmm. So then uh, how do you practically solve this problem? So this paper takes some you know, ideas uh, which are intuitive 
This problem that we're trying to practically solve is more, is tighter error bounds on model performance. Right, right. Mm -hmm. One of the ideas they had was, you know, they say that a model, if you train it on a whatever, you know, take a training set, train a model, and then track the activations of the neurons in that training set. One of their observations is if the whole network is generally getting activated across the whole train set, which means all parts of the brain are being used, Mm -hmm. then you have a robust model is what their observation is. Hmm. If you find that your network is half dead in a way and only half of it is actually doing the job, then they suspect that it's going to be not a robust model. So how do you measure this idea of full activation versus partial activation versus sparse and you know fully densely activated networks they think of the problem as trying to measure connectivity between graphs so you think of each neuron as a node in a graph and if you pass a training set through the neural net you can track the average activation let's say through a given neuron and you can also measure similarity between two neurons by looking at how similar the activations of the two neurons are Mm -hmm. and basically construct a graph that connects Mm -hmm. neurons to each other like the brain connectivity structure What they say is your brain then should be densely connected or all parts should be at least talking to each other. There might be cliques, but there should be interconnectivity between the cliques. And they use techniques from a field called topological data analysis to measure this topological connectivity in the network. Topological data analysis has its roots in an entirely different area of mathematics called computational topology, really, which talks about taking graphs or point clouds, and it's applicable to anything that can be represented as a graph. And you measure things like holes in graphs. If there is a cycle emerging in a graph, they call that a hole. Or if you have higher higher order graphs, you can think of voids in a graph. And those are seen as measures of lack of connectivity in neurons. So they use those measures of connectivity. And they collapse a given network into a few measures, which tell us how densely connected the neurons are in a way. They use that then to train a linear regressor So they take a few common test sets, which are available in in CVPR all the time, and they know what a given, and they look at a few common models like VGG, Netalix, and what have you. They measure these diversity functions, these uh, topological functions for each of these networks and for each of those test sets. And then given we know the common test sets and the common models, we know the train error gaps for those networks for the given test sets. So then you can fit a simple linear regression function, which takes as input these topological values and spits out uh, a train test gap. So there is a learning happening anyway. So this linear regressor that they're using is being trained on common networks in CVPR and common data sets that are used in CVPR. So you can always ask a meta question, how will this linear regressor generalize beyond? So there is a meta mm-hmm. question, right? You know, turtles under turtles. But uh, still, they, I think they made some good progress. They were able to show that even such a simple way of thinking about network interconnectivity can lead you to actionable insights in how robust a model is going to be. So that mm-hmm. to me was interesting. Yeah. The kind of foundational direction that they built this paper on is the idea that the more densely connected the network is or the more broadly activated the network is, the more accurate is going to be? Uh, uh, is accurate the right term there? or uh, I would say more generalizable. More generalizable. More yeah, yeah. Is that a result that they stowed or relied on or just assumed uh, is, is kind of well understood? Or where does I mean, that part come from? 
It's an empirical observation. That's what they say. It's a hypothesis, but then they don't uh, go super specific into framing that as mm-hmm. the cornerstone of it. But what they're saying is we can correlate, you know, these patterns of activation to train test gaps. It's not a provable theorem by any chance. It's not yeah. a well-founded result from neuroscience or anything, okay. but it has some intuitive explanations. Yeah. Yeah, that raised questions for me around... I guess I linked it to kind of the idea that deep neural networks are going to lead us to AGI. My thinking is that, you know, if we have some like sufficiently wide and deep, you know, neural network like thing that's an AGI, I would not expect that everything it thinks about or works on would be, you know, all of it would be activated all the time. I'd expect it to have some degrees of specialization within this larger network. Absolutely. No, no. I mean, that's not counter to what they're assuming. They're saying, yes, for a a given picture, if it's a cat picture, sure, the cat neurons should fire. But over a data set, you should Ah, see activations on an average all over the network. Okay. And so they're computing these averages over a whole training set, not for a single instance. Got it. Okay. Uh, That makes makes sense. That makes sense. So we, we started off talking about kind of theoretical bounds here and are the the more the tighter constraints that they were able to demonstrate with these empirical results or were they also kind of theoretical closed form results i mean no it's it's a fully empirical paper so okay. uh, the train test gaps they're showing are based off of a linear regressor function that they fit which is fully empirical so, no, I don't think the last word has been said at all in this space. Mm-hmm. But it's like the theory has lagged behind quite a bit that yeah. people need some actionable practical things, even if they are bounded in visual data sets of certain kinds. Uh, yeah, this is making some headway towards that, but it's certainly not the final word. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So any other papers that you want to bring up or mention? No, I think uh, there's a ton of follow-on like papers like this. And, yeah. you know, I'd like to just say a shout out to, you know, uh, the survey article or the Medium article that Frank Delat put out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many other papers which we can, you know, or topics of interest which we can talk about. But yeah, I don't want to bring up specific papers uh, anymore. Yeah. 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 I appreciate you uh, focusing on other folks' papers. Any shout outs from uh, among your work and your students? Any, uh, any area that you're lot. particularly <laughs> excited about? Granted that uh, we can refer folks back to that June interview that went deep into your work and that choosing among all the things you're working on, I'm sure, is like, you know, choosing a favorite child. But uh, <laughs> if there's anything that you want to shout out, now would be the time. <laughs> I mean, I have a ton of great students, you know, I have, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the ideas that I was going to talk about interlinks to what my students are actually working on, which is, you know, one of my students in Lawrence Livermore, Rochelle Anirod, who is now going to take over the workshop that we spun off, he's doing a lot of interesting work in applying uh, vision-like ideas to scientific domains, you know, things like point clouds, spectral recordings. I mean, he's the director of the Open Data Science Initiative at Lawrence Livermore, and he's doing great work. Some of my students who are just about to graduate are doing a lot of the fusion kind of work, integrating constraints from geometry and topology into neural nets. And what we're finding is one of the recent papers, which we have not yet published, is a joint paper by two of my students, Hong Jun Choi and Anirudh Som. The paper is on archive. It's called On the Role of Orthogonality in Improving Properties of Deep Neural Nets. We build on a paper that we wrote earlier this year. Orthogonality in feature space or? Feature space, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the idea is very simple. You take autoencoder-like architectures, you know, choose a latent space, and then 
chop it off into blocks and impose some orthogonality across blocks. And then you can scale that idea. You can apply that idea across several layers and you can do that in orthogonality can be imposed in other ways as well. You know, you don't have to be purely orthogonal. You can be spherical and not be orthogonal. So there's a whole variation to what we mean by orthogonality, but it's certainly orthogonality in feature spaces. And what we're finding is when you impose just even the simple orthogonality constraint in an autoencoder in one latent space across blocks, tons of tons of, you know, things improve. You know, we find that very surprisingly things like even calibration error improves. You know, calibration error is this measure of bias, right? I mean, how biased is your model? Even without explicitly countering for bias, just imposing orthogonality in a neural net in a latent space, we were seeing significant drops in calibration error. We were seeing significant improvements in uh, localization of objects. We were seeing improvements in robustness to image degradation. So this idea is not unconnected to what we are seeing with the sphere stuff and sinusoidal stuff and Fourier stuff. In my mind, spheres, Fourier, sinusoids, orthogonality are all interlinked. They're all spherical constraints of different kinds. So some of my students, yeah, as I mentioned, Ong Jin Choi, Anirudh Som, and Anirudh Som is headed to SRI, Princeton, next year. They are spearheading these ideas, and I'm very keen to see where this all heads. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, let's talk a bit beyond research. What are you seeing in either kind of the tools, open source, or commercial realms uh, in terms of application of computer vision? The two big stories of 2020 in the commercial space were what NVIDIA did with video conferencing. I mean, they're promising, uh, they're transitioning GANs as a, a solution to real-time streaming video, basically. So when, mm-hmm. when we have these facial videos being transmitted, the idea is you don't have to transmit the full frame, do face detection, uh, or do segmentation of your facial features, mm-hmm. and maybe transmit a keyframe, and then transmit just the facial features, and then put it together at the receiving end. So it's like driving an avatar in a way, a two-dimensional avatar in a way. And some of the most interesting claims came out of one of my buddies at NVIDIA, you know, uh, Mingyu Liu, who used to be in grad school with me. He's the brains behind a ton of this work at NVIDIA. So he's been uh, making very careful claims. Of course, NVIDIA goes and puts out the news articles, but the technical side is a little more serious. We do know there are some limits. I mean, some of the things they put out is the streaming bitrate can be as low as 0.1 kbps, which is revolutionary on paper. Otherwise, uh, things are at least a few hundreds of kilobytes per second. If it comes down to that level, you have to be a little bit suspicious, clearly. I mean, how would a vision-based facial tracking system work in general? That's the abstract question. And we know, I mean, facial recognition is super problematic, right? I mean, skin tone and you know, other facial traits. And we don't fully understand if it works across people of different color and people of different, you know, hairstyles and uh, eyewear. We don't quite know that yet. But NVIDIA is promising that will happen. (laughs) So we shall see. It also brings up an interesting, in my mind, an interesting privacy-related question. In a way, it's probably good not to have your frames transmitted as is. Maybe having an avatar speak for you adds a layer of privacy for you. But what does it do for... You know, if you if you actually have to prove that you were there, and but it's that's an avatar that is going, it's super interesting. You know, can I just be in frame one when my frame is captured and then step away and have someone else step in <laughs> and drive my avatar on that and in some way? I don't know. It's bringing up all these interesting questions about what is true presence, which are unresolved. So that's happening in NVIDIA. 
One of my other students, one of my recent graduates is in Adobe, who's also involved a little bit in transitioning the GAN kinds of architectures to consumer domains, Kuldeep Kulkarni. But there's many people doing that in, in Adobe. One of the big products that came out was finally they introduced some neural filters into Photoshop through underlying GAN kinds of editing mechanisms. So now we have neural filters for expressions. You can edit expressions for people. You can edit lighting. You can edit textures. The technical interesting piece is, you know, GANs have been criticized for being not easily controllable, right? I mean, they do things and not easy to control them physically. But Adobe seems to have somehow solved this problem. We don't know what they did, of course. It's a trade secret, presumably. Uh, Did they use... uh, full supervision to get a controllable knob for for expressions or was it they discovered all these knobs and then went in and found one knob that was expressions we don't quite know what they did but they're promising that they have controllable filters for editing a lot of physical things on people's faces if you look at their product faq which i dug into they have a disclaimer that oh yeah we know that it sort of works but it sometimes doesn't work if you have <laughs> If you have curly hair, oh my God, you know, or Uh if you have other kinds of, you know, eyewear or, you know, sometimes, yeah, they're making some disclaimers, which is, of course, you know, it points to the problems of deep nets in the ways we understand in the socio-technical sense. But when these products start becoming used, I mean, we don't know the ethical questions that will arise. We don't know what it would mean to have your face edited by a neural filter. And we don't know if it would be true to you in a way. So... Right. <laughs> but those are the big stories from industry. Uh, a lot of stuff has happened, of course. You know, the self-driving stuff, autonomy has somewhat been stalled. I mean, I have not been seeing any big stories come out from the self-driving vehicle or, you know, revolution that was supposed to happen. And being mm-hmm. in Chandler, I'm still seeing way more cars going around collecting trading data. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Didn't um, Uber uh, divest of that whole business this year? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, for a while, the kind of operant theory was that, you know, Uber can continue to, you know, lose money operating the network because it was all about getting the self-driving first. And that was the way it becomes a sustainable business. And to then divest of that self-driving business, I guess it doesn't necessarily say that that model or that idea has changed. Maybe they assume that self-driving will be a commodity and they'll be able to get it someplace else. They don't need to own it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely a statement to see that happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah. this takes us to predictions. <laughs> you predict self-driving in 2021? <laughs> uh, it seems I mean, like a few years ago, I'd ask people and they'd say, oh yeah, yeah, just next year, next year. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I was at CVPR 2017 in Hawaii and I was just sitting quietly at my desk eating lunch and there were two people from two separate startups doing self-driving stuff. And I was having this exact conversation with an academic saying, is it going to be next year? And we were like, nah, it's not going to happen. And they were chuckling at us. And they're like, and we said, why are you laughing? And I said, it's happening this year. We don't watch it. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting all the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, 2021 predictions. uh, I mean, I think this interest in full autonomy, AGI, it's going to fade. I mean, people are tired of listening to that and not seeing it happen. I think some versions of it will continue. I mean, the DOD will continue to invest in it, but then very specific use cases and very Mm -hmm. specific deployment conditions. I can see research proceeding in that direction, but full on level five autonomy, not so much. 
I mean, there's a lot of interesting uh, theoretical work that still needs to be done. As you mentioned, self-supervised learning, you know, what is a theoretical framing? What does it even mean? What's the definition of the problem statement? Mm-hmm. And even the problem statement has not been fully defined other than this vaguely stated thing. Yeah, I predict parts of the signal from other parts of the signal. It's not quite a problem statement as neatly framed as, let's say, supervised learning. XI, mm-hmm. YI, predict XI from YI or the other way around. So again, asking what, how do we know things work and how do we know things converge and Similar questions about reinforcement learning, similar questions about, you know, other kinds of learning techniques which are emerging. And some of my colleagues at ASU are actually working on those. Yejo Yang in computer science, he's doing some theoretical work on that. We have a lot of interest in our, you know, this is where I can put on my arts hat. You know, arts and media and experience design is an emerging area which I think will explode on the scene as soon as the pandemic lifts. People want mm. in-person experiences. People want to be in physical spaces where they can interact with people and environments and feel joy and happiness and just be well. And you want a reason to show up to your work. You want a reason to show up to, you know, a, a, a gathering, whether it's in your house or a family you know, event or if it's a public space. How do we create spaces that are inviting? It's not a new question. How do we create spaces that are inviting is an age-old question in architecture. It's an age-old question in design. But now with cameras and sensors becoming embedded into spaces that would otherwise not be considered, you know, instrumented, people are beginning to ask these questions. How can we use vision techniques? How can we use real-time technologies to reinvent what space is? And Mm -hmm. a lot of that work is happening in arts and design schools, including our own. So we have a lot of interest in creating wellness pods, for example, can we have wellness pods and deployed in a mall where you walk in and then of course technically speaking there is a rig maybe there's cameras located and uh, your movement is being tracked but then you hear your movement data or your body shape related information is converted to interesting kinds of sound feedback or visual projections where Mm -hmm. you're sort of feeling immersed in space Mm -hmm. so immersive media immersive technology is yet another emerging thing where computer vision methods have a strong role to play And it goes beyond classic headsets. It's not just augmented reality and virtual reality, although those things might happen, you know, in 2021. I mean, the future of work is debatably both physical as well as virtual, depending upon who you ask. Or maybe it's something in the middle. It's mixed. So there is augmentation of a physical space with the virtual. So all those things will be interesting in 2021. Once again, I feel... You can't expect, you know, one of the things that is expected, it's it's like playing into the same kind of trope that the autonomy stuff have, you know, played into, uh-huh. that the computer vision is perfect, right? And the only things that need to happen are in system integration. So I see a lot of that thinking happening also in this space, but maybe there are other applications where you don't need that amount of perfection. So we shall see what those spaces look like. So that's certainly something I'm very bullish on in 2021, which is we need to give people a reason to be in a space and it can't just be screen time. I mean, it needs to be experienced and re-envisioned in a different way that is aware of you as a person, aware of you as a body. How do you feel embodied in a virtual environment? You know, that's a big, interesting question for me. So that Mm -hmm. could pick up steam. And of course, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of interest in science and tech. You know, I don't know if you noticed a few crazy articles came out in the summer. One of the crazy things was a physicist wrote an article saying that the entirety of the universe is a neural net. You know, there is crazy claims like that happening. And there are other scientific claims happening, which is many, many laws of science ranging from gravity to quantum mechanics to whatnot. 
can be approximated through neural nets given enough training sets. And there is a third, you know, emerging area which says the laws of physics can be rediscovered through neural nets, like F equals MA. You don't actually have to write it down. Just give it inputs and outputs and we will discover F equals MA. So it's a little crazy. I don't think it's going to work out that easily. But all of that is emerging and uh, it's not a computer vision application as much as a machine learning application. But I think a lot of machine learning will transition to science proper. I am very excited about that, but also super worried. What does it mean to rely on a neural net in a science application? You know, we'll figure out. All those scientific questions are going to come back. And then, um, yes, I mean, there are other, you know, smaller developments which are actually happening for a while. Things like spiking neural nets, you know, which people have said are more closely or more biologically motivated. They could come to mainstream. I mean, uh, they have always lagged behind convolutional neural nets in performance, but I've seen the gaps reduce. Why now? What are you seeing that is making you put that in your... What's your time horizon? Is it 2021? I mean, in 2021, I think people will treat it equally with respect as they have treated CNNs. So one of the past criticisms was they have always lagged behind CNNs and benchmarks. But now that has gone. I mean, they have enough... Is that based on some specific advancements in 2020 that you could point to that we didn't cover? I mean, it would have to be optimization methods. The the thing that has held back spiking neural nets is they don't have very efficient optimization methods like Adam or, you know, backprop in in Mm -hmm. convolutional neural nets. So people have used things like Bayesian optimization, which is much more computationally intensive. I have not tracked the optimization part of that literature very closely, but if I were to dig, it would have to have something to do with an efficient optimizer for those architectures. The other thing is spiking neural nets have hardware benefits. I mean, spiking things can be implemented in hardware a lot more efficiently. There are things called event cameras, which exist, which are very close to how spiking neurons work. So they they have much easy integration into hardware platforms. uh, That's a benefit that they will have. I've seen people ask, can we take uh, event-based cameras which don't record RGB values, but they only record changes in RGB values. That's just the way the pixel is designed. It changes. There is an integrate and fire operation. As if there is enough accumulation or if there's enough change, it would, it would fire. Uh, so all those things have been used to recover full RGB and they have been used to recover optical flow. They have been used to detect objects and scenes and activities. So the gaps and capabilities are reducing. It may may not replace CNNs, but it would be seen as a viable alternative for certain hardware platforms. Interesting. Yeah. And there is this big other paper, ICLR, you know, uh, we don't know if it's going to be published. Uh, It's anonymous yet, but it made waves a few weeks ago. Transformers are going to replace convolutions (laughs) as the base architecture. I will Mm -hmm. withhold on that. I mean, I like convolutions. Hey, I mean... We know our eyes have lenses and lenses are described by convolutional operations and then the cells have convolutional interpretations. I'm having a little bit of a hard time believing that transformers will replace convolutions, but there are enough people saying that will happen. Mm-hmm. Even if it happens, if it happens, it's actually going to make things even less you know, transparent. It will be much, much harder to describe why a neural networks if we say transformers do better than convolutions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we shall see what the data says. So that is mm-hmm. another thing that is going to be interesting. Keeping yeah. an eye on. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Awesome. Well, Pavan, thanks so much for joining us to share a bit of your take on uh, 2020 and beyond. As always, it was wonderful catching up with you and uh, looking forward to the next time. Lots of interesting stuff going on in computer vision, no doubt about that. And thanks for helping uh, walk us through that. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be back. I mean, I never expected to be back. So thank you so much for having me back. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Enjoy your holiday and, and take care. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Bye. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.